This podcast is brought to you by GovInfoSecurity.com, the leading online publication for risk management and security professionals within federal, state, and local government agencies. Hello, I'm Eric Chabra of GovInfoSecurity.com, and I'm pleased to welcome back Elaine Starkey. She's Chief Security Officer for the state of Delaware. Thanks again for taking time to speak, Elaine. You're welcome, Eric. In our last podcast, we discussed how Delaware employs a different way of measuring the performance of its employees in its IT security area. We're going to continue our conversation and focus on a, a major problem that faces not only Delaware, but other states, data leakage. First, Elaine, how do you define data leakage? And tell us a bit about the Delaware's data leakage problems. One of the things we've been focused on recently, Eric, is our ways to actually close any possible data leakage issue. And, and the way I define data leakage is anytime any type of confidential or otherwise protected information leaves the state network either unintended, it is unintended that it leaves the network, or it leaves the network in a way that is unprotected or unencrypted. We have four classifications that follow the, the federal classifications ranging from public to top secret. And quite frankly, the only data that is allowed to leave the, the state infrastructure is public data. All of the others can only leave if it is properly protected or properly encrypted. So this is just something that we've been focusing on at least the last six to eight months, just analyzing how big or how small the problem is and trying to take steps to mitigate the risk. Give us some examples of some of the problems with data leakage. Our most recent examples have been around social security numbers. We have done some analysis of our emails that are leaving the state network containing a social security number or a SSM-like pattern. And we're not so much worried about the emails that are going from state user to state user because our network infrastructure protects that automatically through encryption, but we're worried about those that leave the state network in a clear text email. And they may be social security numbers of our citizens. In fact, it's very common for citizens that are inquiring about state services to send an email to a division or an agency inquiring maybe for a status of something, and they will send along their social security number, full social security number, in an unencrypted email. The state agency may respond to that and reply and continue the thread. In the thread, that social security number may bounce back and forth in and out of the network four or five times unprotected. That's the kind of work we looked at. We just a very uninvasive approach to the problem first, just trying to analyze how big the problem was. We decided that it was something that needed attention, and just in the last 15 days, we've been able to close that potential leakage area. Are people using social security numbers, whether they're people who are corresponding with the state or even state employees, in situations where the number really isn't necessary? I believe so. Quite frankly, encrypting an email, in my opinion, is maybe the third choice. But what I would rather see is when they, they that correspondence continues back to the citizen, they take a look at it and say, do I really need to send that full social security number? And many times... The answer is no. There's some need for an identifier. Maybe it's just the last four. And it would not be against our policy to send just the last four in an unencrypted email. The absolute best way to mitigate the risk 
is to take a look at your business need and ask yourself, do I really need to send this full Social Security number or this file of full Social Security numbers outside of the state network? Does Delaware use Social Security numbers for purposes other than Social Security, which is a federal government responsibility? A number of our systems require it. It may not be the what I would call the key field or the primary field as it once was. It used to be the, the key field, for example, in our motor vehicle system. It's been many years now that has changed as the, the value of a Social Security number became more important. It used to be a wonderful, unique identifier, but um, now it introduces so many privacy concerns. Certainly it is collected and stored in many state systems. Why, except for maybe payroll purposes, would the state need to use, a so- or any organization would need to use a social security number? I think some of it, Eric, is, is just kind of left over from the, it's a convenient, easy way to uniquely identify an individual, whether it's someone applying for child support benefits, some type of family transaction or health care or Anything along those lines, we're seeing over time, I think that's going to change, and it's not because it's such a hot-button field. I think that it will slowly be phased out as a data element in a lot of databases. But in the meantime, it's still there. I mean, take a look. If you know anyone that's on Medicare, you know, take a look at their Medicare card. There it is printed, you know, right on the card. We advise a lot of our senior citizens when we're doing security presentations to try to commit that Social Security number to memory. You know, to carry it around in your wallet is a huge risk. So what are the initiatives underway to combat that leakage? The first thing that we've done is we've implemented, we've reconfigured our, our email tool so that we scan all outbound emails looking for social security number or an SSM-like pattern, and if found, we'll block that. If it's a straight nine-digit number that um, could potentially be a social security number, we send an advisory back to to the sender, letting them know there's a possibility that that was a social security number. But if it's a true bona fide three digits, hyphen, two digits, hyphen, four digits, we actually block it. We allow the technology to take care of the of closing the vulnerability, sending an, an alert back to the sender to let them know that they attempted to send confidential information and the send has been blocked. The recipient did not receive the email. Has that caused any kind of business problems? So far, so good. We're only about two weeks into it, and we did a lot of education to our customers up front, and we identified uh, several applications that were sending nine-digit numbers that were not Social Security numbers, so uh, we took some special steps to prevent the disruption to their applications, but knock on wood, so far, so good. You also have programs allowing the use of personal mobile devices by state employees that you just initiated. What is the problem that created this new policy? For the last six years or so, we in Delaware have standardized on the BlackBerry mobile device to meet our business mobile device needs. It has served us very well. We're quite satisfied with with everything about the BlackBerry and the underlying architecture, including the very robust security controls that we enjoy on the BEZ server. Things like strong passwords and encryption, inactivity timeout, remote wiping, 
all of those things. What we are seeing, though, just in the last 12 months or so, is a shift of requirements from our customers. Rather than carrying around a work device and a personal device, we're seeing the trend toward combining both their work data and their home data onto a single device. We actually have not, up until just yesterday, (laughs) we had not disabled that capability. What we did effective yesterday is we put in a blocking mechanism so that only pre-approved smartphones, those devices that where people have gone through a process to request approval to connect to the state network and have acknowledged that I agree to the standard state security policies around password management, using strong passwords, using inactivity timeout monitors, If necessary, I agree to have my device remote wipe if there's some type of vulnerability. I also agree to encryption, make sure all the traffic and the device itself is encrypted, all of those things. I see this as a huge step in in closing down a risk. I mean, if you think about it, you know, everyone's carrying around these smartphones. If that smartphone is indeed connected and synced to the state network, if it's not password protected, and if it gets lost or stolen, it gets in the hands of someone. They literally have unfettered access to state data, which is the kind of stuff that causes me to lose sleep at night. And uh, it is this type of um, new policy that we're rolling out this week that will close that data leakage problem. And what has been the reception from employees to this? Very mixed. Everything from people that, you know, understand the security risk, and understand uh, why this is so important and maybe make the decision to say, hey, you know, I just kind of did this more out of convenience. It's not a real requirement of mine. Take me off your list. I don't really want to do this. We've also fielded a lot of questions about how does that remote wiping, how's that going to work, and if my device is at risk, where does the state data start and stop or the governance of that state data start and stop, and where does my own personal data governance come into play? How does the acceptable use policy apply to all of this? It's been an interesting rollout for sure. We've had a lot of feedback. I know that some of my peers in other states have taken the approach of just simply locking everybody out. And we consider that in Delaware. We considered it very seriously, but we decided we wanted to have a more customer-friendly approach and find a way to balance the security requirements with the the needs of our customers. I think we've come up with a way to do that. When you talk about remote wipe, what are the conditions that the data would be wiped out? The first good example of that is if it does indeed get in the wrong hands and there are seven failed attempts to log into the system, it automatically wipes. That mirrors our BlackBerry policy already. So if someone is a fat finger typist, they are at risk. It's a protection to just if it gets in the wrong hands, that device would be protected and secured after the first time. The other ones are more what we are hoping to be far less frequent than that. But if there is some type of risk, some type of exposure, some something that can be tied back to a device, we just reserve the right to kind of take that device off of the network and, if necessary, remotely wipe it. We're hoping not to use that very often, but we, we need to reserve the ability to do that if needed. The wipe policy... To some, I guess, would sound draconian, 
especially if you have your own personal information in there. But uh, is is that the, the best alternative? Would just locking out not be sufficient? We would certainly consider that. I mean, it would depend on the situation. If we needed to just simply lock that device down and we could had the ability to troubleshoot it in a different way, we would certainly want to do that. We we realize that remotely wiping, especially because we can't we can't separate the personal data and the work data. We have to wipe the entire device. That is not something I want to do very often. But like I said, we, we need to reserve the ability to do it if needed. What were some of the privacy concerns that employees raised about their own information on their devices? Do you do anything to assure them uh, that their personal information will be private, or is there nothing you really can assure them on that? Yeah, we have assured them exactly that. And the way that we've done that is to be very clear where the acceptable, the state acceptable use policy starts and stops. State acceptable use policy is there to govern state data, state transactions only, whether it's a phone call or an email or a data file or whatever. We do not intend, I do not want to, <laughs> and, then, and actually it's impractical to think that we would be out there monitoring personal phone calls or personal emails or anything like that. That is not our intent at all. The user has made the decision that they want to combine their their work and their home onto a single device, and we respect the fact that work is work and their personal, their personal things are not under the state acceptable use policy. And that use policy does define that certain private personal information remains personal. Correct. So when are you going to be reviewing this? I mean, how many months out will you say, is this working or not? The first example I used is a little bit easier to measure kind of in the out weeks and out months because we've already identified 101 emails that potentially would have left the state network prior to us implementing the blocking tool would have and since November 1 has been blocked by the new filter. We're going to be watching that number closely because what I expected to do is probably grow a little bit more as people become educated and understand, you know, how to use the encryption tool and all of that. And then I'm looking for a downward trend to that number so that they're no longer even attempting to send the Social Security number out. They're remembering to mask it or remove it before they click send. The smartphone one is a little bit harder to measure. I mean, I just know, quite frankly, every email that that came through that said, I don't really need to do this. It's not real important to me. Take me off your list. With every removal of that, in my mind, we removed um, a significant risk. Those of us in the security business know we can always find a way to remove the risk, which is to shut people out and lock things down. And this approach we wanted to take was a kinder, gentler (laughs) approach to at least give our employees the option to do this while still maintaining the proper security controls. And why is that the proper way to approach it? It's not the only way, for sure, but from the research we did, I worked very closely with NASIO and the multi-state ISAC. I talked to a lot of other states to, to see what they're doing, and in my opinion, this was the best practice model that emerged. In fact, earlier this year, NASIO took some of the results of our survey and published a white paper called Security at the Edge, Protecting Mobile Computing Devices. And it has a lot of the, not only what Delaware is doing, but other states, what we're doing to try to to close this data leakage issue. Thanks, Elaine. You're welcome, Eric. 
I've been speaking with Elaine Starkey, Delaware State Chief Security Officer for GovInfoSecurity.com. I'm Eric Chabro. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by GovInfoSecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.GovInfoSecurity.com.